DW Inside Europe Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Coming up on today's programme, colonial connection, the coup in Niger and what it means for France. Burning books, Sweden's freedom of speech laws are tested to the max. Extreme groups use this and want this and they, they feed on uh, these events uh, and they use it. If these events are not happening, they don't have a material to tell people, well, like, go and bomb yourself in the middle of, uh, of Europe. And change at last? Bulgaria reckons with domestic violence. Those stories and more coming up here on Inside Europe. On Thursday, leaders of the West African bloc ECOWAS met for an emergency summit in Abuja to discuss their response to the military coup in Niger after their ultimatum to the junta to relinquish power or face military intervention went unheeded. Niger's neighbours, Burkina Faso, Mali and Guinea, all former French colonies suspended from the bloc after experiencing their own coups in the past three years, support the junta. Right from the beginning, the language of Niger's military putschists and their supporters has been explicitly anti-colonialist. But French rule in Niger ended in 1960. So just what has France got to do with it? To find out, I spoke to Nabila Ramdani, a French journalist, broadcaster and academic of Algerian descent and author of Fixing France, How to Repair a Broken Republic. Well, as you say, it's 63 years since Niger officially gained independence from France. So you think France would be free of all involvement in what's going on right now. But that's by no means the case. Uh, Despite the illusion of complete withdrawal, France still has a garrison of 1,500 troops in Niger, together with an air force base servicing fighter jets and attack drones, for example. So all of this is a forceful reminder that in spite of a long and bloody period of decolonization, France has in fact retained a quasi-empire in Africa by stealth, and it is under threat like never before. Niger, for example, is the world's seventh largest uranium producer, and France, which relies on nuclear energy for around 70% of its power, is a key importer. There's also uh, the fact that military and governmental advisors from Paris have permeated successive Nigerian administration, not least of all the one that has just been deposed. And the country uh, is, of course, of great strategic importance, not least of all because of the threat from terrorist groups such as Al-Qaeda in the vast Sahel region. And, I mean, in terms of African reactions, Nabila, it was very noticeable that the first countries to come out in support of the coup were Burkina Faso, Mali and Guinea. Now, these are all former French colonies that have undergone military coups in the past three years. Why this backlash against France? And what does it mean? I mean, you've already touched on that, really. But, you know, just just how significant is this for France's geopolitical standing? Well, France's problem is that many Africans are now rejecting uh, France-Afrique with as much fervor as their forebears came to reject the official French empire. 
And in this sense, France's traditional dominance in sub-Saharan Africa is disintegrating. And despite receiving up to $2 billion a year in development assistance, Niger remains one of the poorest countries on earth, with a literacy rate of just 37%. The EU was due to allocate 500 million euros to Niger in the three years up to 2024. But the ongoing influence on France and its allies is still blamed for endemic problems, uh, which include mass youth unemployment, for example. Uh, Niger is only the latest country in the region to undergo a coup, and all express increasing resentment towards the French and indeed the West, while rival powers, including Russia, Turkey and China, threaten to exploit the situation. So in the aftermath of the coup in Niger, uh, the former colonies effectively rejecting French influence. And in the meantime, um, global powers, including China and Russia, are closing in. Listen, I wanted to bring in the question of Russia here because the presence of Russian flags in demonstrations uh, has been very noticeable. And this week, the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, actually warned that Wagner mercenaries might move in and take advantage of the situation. So I, I wanted to sort of ask what the risks are that you see here and also what the connections are between Europe's internal conflicts and the ones that we're uh, seeing playing out in Africa at the moment. Uh, Hunters in Burkina Faso and Mali have already warned that any attempt to restore Bazoum in Niger via military intervention will be viewed as a declaration of war. Uh, Troops working for uh, Wagner, the Russian uh, mercenary group, are meanwhile operating within Niger's neighbors, and they have offered their support to the rebellious uh, Nigerians. And indeed, Russian flags were brandished by those Uh, demonstrating outside the French embassy in Niamey, uh, with many calling for Vladimir Putin to replace Emmanuel Macron as the biggest global backer. And this raises the prospect of a new scramble for Africa, if you like. And if, uh, as seems very likely, hatred of France intensifies, then there is every possibility of full-blown evacuations to include French soldiers as key nations in the France-Afrique, uh, sub-Saharan Africa uh, region, finally complete the decolonization uh, process. Finally, Nabila, the title of your book, Fixing France, How to Repair a Broken Republic. It sounds to me as though um, the answer to that question is going to be very much intertwined with the question of France's relationship to its former colonies. What do you think needs to happen? There is no doubt that France needs to move away from its poisonous colonial era myth to stop treating Africans as second-class citizens and to stop treating former colonies as dependents. And many far-right politicians in France, and indeed quite a lot of alleged centre-right ones, are obsessed with Gallic nationalism and with portraying the so-called traditional France as the only important one. And they still describe settled French citizens as immigrants, just because they can trace their roots back to former colonies. And they do all they can to keep genuine immigrants out because they're not considered compatible with true Frenchness. So it's a highly toxic narrative, but one that is succeeding in France 
as we see from the ongoing um, success of Marine Le Pen and her National Rally Party, and through the mainstream acceptance of out-and-out racist commentators uh, in the media. So one way of fixing France would certainly be to finally move away from this colonial narrative. I was speaking to French-Algerian journalist Nabila Ramdani. The UK and US editions of her book, Fixing France, How to Repair a Broken Republic, are both out this autumn with Hachette and Hearst publishers, respectively. Now, there were continued existential questions for another European country this week. Sweden's permissive attitude to freedom of speech has long been a source of pride in the Scandinavian country. Recently, though, it's become a bitter bone of contention following protests involving the burning of the Muslim holy book, the Quran. Now the Swedish government is trying to balance its commitment to freedom of speech with the need to ensure public safety and contain the diplomatic damage done to its international relations with Muslim countries. Terry Schultz dives into the dilemma in Stockholm. Hussam El-Ghamadi is scrolling through his phone, disturbed at what he sees. He pauses on one long post in his native area. Uh, Muhammad Ahmad Ali, which is the more typical name with some phony picture. One of many profiles, like countless profiles. And then you're going to find that he's also liking the Ukrainian-Russian war and he commenting a lot about it. It's always pro-Russia elements. El-Ghamadi is a Libyan-born political activist currently working as an investor in Stockholm. But whenever there's a Koran burning, he goes there to try to speak to people in the crowd and tamp down tempers. He's alarmed that the volatility of the situation in Sweden is being used by extremists around the world to fan the flames of hatred, division and violence, primarily in Muslim countries. El-Ghamadi says one big beneficiary of all the tension is the Russian government, which repeats and amplifies criticism of Sweden's liberal laws on freedom of expression, which do allow desecration of religious texts for now. That works really well for Russian President Vladimir Putin's propaganda. El-Ghamadi pulls up another Arabic-language post showing Putin kissing a Koran on a Muslim holiday. The person posting it is criticizing Sweden. They say, like, uh, the pictures is showing everything. This is why we Muslims with uh, Moscow. And um, this kind of message have us, like, echo, you know, uh, uh, and it's being used again and again. El-Ghamadi believes Swedish police should stop issuing permits for these public demonstrations. Extreme groups use this and want this. And they, they feed on uh, these events uh, and they use it. If these events are not happening, they don't have a material to tell people, well, like, go and bomb yourself in the middle of, uh, of Europe. That's a fear the Swedish government has come to realize. Last week, it decided to grant police more powers to check identities and vehicles at borders to try to keep out anyone who may be coming to seek revenge on Sweden. Foreign Minister Tobias Billström spoke to DW after the cabinet confirmed the measures. The mere fact that we perceive an increased security threat as a result of the, of the Quran burnings is enough for us to make these decisions. And we see for certain that they are uh, that Russian uh, initiators are trying to spread the narrative about what is going on. Mikkel Osland with the Swedish Defense Ministry's Agency for Psychological Defense confirms the Kremlin is reaping the benefits of the controversy. He says this is the first time the tactic has been used to such an extent by the Russian propaganda machine. They're repeating the narratives that we see in the Islamic extremist uh, environment uh, and uh, use that in their uh, 
state-controlled media channels uh, like Russia Today and, and Sputnik towards the Arabic-speaking uh, people. Russia seeks alliances in, in the global south, uh, Latin America, in African countries and in Asia. So, so it's quite easy to repeat the narratives in Arabic uh, also for them. Last week, Stockholm was bracing for multiple Koran burnings based on requests made to police for permits to hold public meetings. One of them was by a man whose actions have wreaked havoc in the past. Iraqi refugee Sawan Momika has previously not only caused chaos in downtown Stockholm, but also provoked severe violence against Swedish interests abroad when Iraqis set fire to the Swedish embassy in Baghdad. But this time, Momika withdrew his request, and instead, just one woman burned a Koran by herself out on a lonely beach, with no one present but a handful of police officers, a couple of journalists, including this one, and Hussam El Gamadi in attendance. He got into a bit of a shouting match with the woman, originally from Iran, who's done this before and plans to do it again. I'm telling her, what you're doing now is, is, a, is a hate speech. It's not a free speech. It is effective and it's a dangerous and we need to, to make a stop on this. The Swedish government is currently debating its next steps, whether it indeed must put a stop to this by allowing police to deny permits based on concerns for national security. Terry Schultz, DW, Stockholm. Terry Schultz is on Mastodon and Twitter. Follow her for the latest from Brussels and beyond. In the meantime, you're listening to Inside Europe with me, Kate Laycock, in Germany. There were protests in the Bulgarian capital, Sofia, again this week, as a 26-year-old man accused of violently assaulting his teenage girlfriend appeared for a preliminary hearing. The case, shocking because of its brutality, has become the focus of demands for change in a country where, since 2019, at least two women a month have been killed by male perpetrators of domestic violence. From Sofia, I'm joined by by reporter Damien Vodinicharov, who has been following the story. Damien, perhaps you could begin by setting out for us the basic facts of the case and also how the authorities initially responded. Yeah, definitely. On June 26th, an 18-year-old woman was attacked in the city of Stara Zagora, which is uh, located about 200 kilometres east of Bulgarian capital, Sofia. And her ex-boyfriend, a 26-year-old knight called Bouncer, who was already convicted of inflicting bodily harm, allegedly attacked her, shaving her head, breaking her nose, and cutting her up 21 times with a box knife, which led to her having 400 stitches all over her body. And the response of the authorities uh, is uh, honestly just as shocking as, as the attack itself. The alleged uh, perpetrator was left out of jail. Uh, original court ruled that injuries sustained by the victim only amounted to minor injuries, uh, mind you. Her parents reached out to national media about a month after the attack because of this really anemic response of local authorities. And 
uh, mass protests uh, ensued and ignited uh, throughout the country once the story hit headlines. Uh, one of the judges in charge of the case appeared on national television explaining the court's decision and according to her, the evidence pointed to non-life-threatening injuries which are interpreted by law as mi- being minor injuries. Um, and as you said yourself, Kate, uh, this is but one case in a long line of abuse cases uh, or even murders of, of women in Bulgaria. Some of them are really quite uh, gruesome, such as the uh, murder of a woman who was dismembered. Her body was then disposed of in a suitcase near Sofia. Uh, yet neither lawmakers nor, nor law enforcement seem to be too preoccupied by this wave of domestic violence. So, I mean, as you say there, this really does seem to be part of a very grim pattern. But this time, something different happened. And that really was the public response. We've had protests and there seems to have been a massive disconnect, really, between public opinion in Bulgaria and institutional responses from institutions like the police and the courts. So, given this disconnect, how have the authorities responded? How have they moved to redress the situation? Well, unfortunately, this case is quite typical and it illustrates quite well the way the Bulgarian justice systems really works. Uh, so it is pretty common that little to no attention is paid to cases of domestic abuse or any kind of violence, really, until the case hits the media. Uh, then institutions seem to really spring into action while the case is still fresh um, uh, in, in people's minds. But once the public outcry dies down, the courts seem to be dragging their feet Uh, once again, which is exactly what's happening in this case as well. The local prosecutor's office was quick to bring new charges after the case was made public, and the alleged uh, the perpetrator is now being charged with death threats made to the victim. Uh, what's curious is that uh, the medical experts in this case have all recused themselves amid um, all the media frenzy. The regional prosecutor also resigned from his position, which is really standard procedure in, in high-profile cases such as this. Resignations are commonplace, but uh, really addressing the underlying issues, uh, such as the deeply troubled judicial system or possible local corruption, which led to clemency or general apathy towards domestic violence, Now, all those issues are typically put off. Nevertheless, there have been quite swift moves to make changes to the Bulgarian penal code. Do you think you could tell me a bit more about that? Uh, yeah, that is quite right. There was a swift vote uh, this week when the members of parliament actually cut their vacation short uh, to uh, be able to vote to an amendment to the domestic abuse law. So now... Domestic abuse is not only confined to married couples or to uh, households and members of the same household. Now, it is also considered in cases of uh, the so-called intimate relationship, which was defined by law uh, as being a, a relationship between a man and a woman, mind you, uh, being together for more than 60 days, whatever that means. So uh, domestic abuse cases will now also be brought up against abusers within a couple and not only a household or a married couple. So quite significant changes happening there. There has, however, been quite a bit of political pushback on that. And interestingly, this political pushback doesn't seem to have uh, fallen along the sort of left-right split that you might expect, so much as uh, along a, a pro or anti-Russian split. Is, is that a fair analysis there, Damien? I mean, can you explain to me what's going on here? 
Yeah, that is actually quite right. Uh, the pro-Russian parties in parliament are actually conservative uh, parties uh, regarding social issues. So that includes the Nationalist Renaissance Party, uh, but also the Socialist Party, which is the direct descendant of the Communist Party that ruled the country for over 40 years. So you heard that right. The Bulgarian left is socially conservative. And these two parties oppose any kind of gay rights uh, making their way into Bulgarian legislation, which is uh, why they insisted on formulating things in such a conservative fashion when voting uh, this amendment to the uh, domestic abuse law. So these parties, the Socialist Party and the far right, uh, insisted upon this uh, really conservative language. And these parties are very wary of of the pro-Western coalition, which is in power, uh, taking advantage somehow of the situation to further gay rights or, uh, you know, quote-unquote gender ideology as it has come to be known in Bulgaria. Bulgaria has not yet ratified the Istanbul Convention, which is an international treaty aimed at preventing and combating violence against women and girls put forward by the Council of Europe in 2011. Could this be a watershed moment? Could be this the thing that prompts it to do so in the future? Or are we still far off from that? Well, that was largely the work of the Socialist Party once again, which very firmly opposed Uh, the ratification of the Istanbul Convention. And once again, on the grounds that it paved the way for this gender ideology by trying to impose a third gender or gay marriage in Bulgaria. So this divide runs quite deep within uh, Bulgarian society. Back in 2018, when the uh, Istanbul Convention was being debated, the Bulgarian Orthodox Church or the Grand Mufti or even intellectuals and scholars opposed its ratification. And last year, the government even officially expressed its firm opposition to the Istanbul Convention. So uh, it seems highly unlikely that the thorny issue of its uh, the ratification will be tackled anytime soon. Reporter Damien Vodinicharov there speaking to me from the Bulgarian capital. I'd like to just use this moment to draw your attention to the EU Commission's Non No 9 campaign, Say No, Stop Violence Against Women. If you look up their website, then that includes a helpline directory listing helplines for women available in 46 different European countries. Also, a quick reminder that our feedback address is insideeurope at dw.com. Do drop us a line if you have any comments about the programme or if there is a story that you would like to hear us cover. And, and I promise this really is the final public service announcement, we do of course have a podcast and are very grateful for your likes, ratings and subscriptions, as of course is our sister programme, Living Planet. Many of our countries are experiencing extreme weather patterns. I think the game is over, you know. Because it's happening more and more and it's no longer this futuristic, hypothetical thing. You realise that, you know, this isn't a long, slow evolution of change. This is rapid. Living Planet with Charlie Shield and Sam Baker. Environment stories from around the world. And you can only take so much out of the bank until there's nothing left in the bank. And what did you here? Our monkeys were about to disappear. Before there were lots. No other animal there steps up to fill its role. They start to then disappear too. We don't even know all the species of wild bees that there are. Once the real ferns die, the last real swamps dry up, will we enter spaces that hold only digital memories of nature? Also disabled people have to be recognized in sustainability. Usually it doesn't happen. I think the Gen Z is pissed, actually. 
Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe, and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Coming up in the next half hour, Legacy of Occupation. A new inquiry opens up old questions in the Channel Islands, the only British territories to have experienced Nazi rule. Who were these people? What conditions did they live under? What happened to them if they did survive and went back home? You imagine the stoicism to not cave in, to get ill, but just to carry on and to somehow see the war through and to go back to Ukraine, back to Russia, back to to France. I think those people do deserve recognition. I think their story needs to be told. Sleeping rough. Why are so many people experiencing homelessness in Germany? Fight for freedom. Russian LGBTQ plus refugees share their stories. And bucking the trend, French towns compete to host nuclear power plants. All those stories and more still to come here on Inside Europe. Broadcasting from Germany, this is Inside Europe. The Channel Islands are an archipelago in the English Channel, just off the coast of France. During World War II, they were occupied by German forces who brought in thousands of forced labourers, mostly from Russia and Ukraine, to fortify the islands, which became part of Hitler's Atlantic Wall. During that time, the island of Alderney, which had been almost completely evacuated in anticipation of the German invasion, housed four forced and slave labour sites, including the concentration camp Zilt. The official death toll from the Alderney camps stands at 389, but earlier this month, the UK government announced the launch of a new inquiry into that number, which is thought to have been significantly higher. From the studios of Guernsey's Island FM, broadcast journalist Ewan Mai reflects on this troubled chapter of Channel Island history and on his own relationship to the ghosts of the past. So my name's Ewan Mai, and I was born in Guernsey and I've travelled all over the Channel Islands as well as Europe and beyond but I know the islands, uh, particularly I would say Guernsey and Alderney, pretty much like the back of my hand. So I grew up in the north of the island and very, very close to where I grew up there were unsurprisingly German fortifications everywhere and I remember as a child playing on them with, uh, with friends and then from that sort of sparked an interest really in what are these things, what were they here to do and then a wider interest 
in later years of who built them and what sort of conditions did these people live in. And my grandparents lived here during the time that the Germans occupied Guernsey. And I used to I remember just sort of saying, tell me about the occupation, tell me about the occupation. And so, and so they did, and particularly my grandmother. And there were some recurrent stories. And one of them was in the latter years when everybody was incredibly hungry. Basically, the Allies had retaken France after June 44, and there were no German shipments of food or supplies or troops or anything to the islands. And gradually, people began to get incredibly hungry, but none more so than the German troops, because quite soon, locals had Red Cross food parcels sent over. The Germans weren't allowed to touch them. And so they became incredibly hungry. And she remembered Germans stalking cats. She remembered Germans trying to dig up potatoes that they were growing, sometimes green potatoes, which obviously you can't eat. And she's saying, no, 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 you can't eat those. But the Germans being hungry, but then the slave labourers or the forced labourers walking around just with sallow, sallow cheeks, sallow skin, clearly just never having enough to eat. And my uncle, who was a young lad, he would have been about five or six, he remembers being upstairs in the granite cottage they lived in and looking over the wall at an organisation, TOTE, that's the OT, the German construction firm, that, that, that was set up to build all these defences. And he saw these prisoners effectively being beaten and being sprayed with cold water, even on cold winter days. So that's in living memory. He's still around. He's in his 80s now, but he remembers that. And he, he always mentions it. He mentioned it a few months ago, the last time I saw him. So those memories, obviously they're dying out now, but they're still there and they're still strong about the horrible conditions that these people were kept in. My father was born just before the war, so in 1938. My mother was born in 1943, which is when you kind of think about it, extraordinary, really. Somebody born during an occupation by, you know, an, in a world at war, but nevertheless they were. So as my grandparents took the decision, like many in Guernsey, not to go to the UK, everybody was offered that opportunity to get away on boats in June 1940 when you could see the smoke on the horizon. You can see France on a clear day. You could see the smoke from where the Germans were, had advanced. So it was pretty obvious what was going to happen next. But lots of people stayed. But interestingly, and we're here to talk about Alderney, that didn't happen in Alderney. The vast majority of the population left. They decided in June 1940 to leave the island and go to the UK, leaving just a handful of people to look after the farms and to look after the animals, and that was it. So Alderney was, from the beginning of the German occupation, a blank canvas. So... In May 1945, when the Germans surrendered, a British military intelligence contingent, and particularly one officer, was sent over to Alderney. Because remember, Alderney had no witnesses. There were very few civilians there, just those working the farm. So the Germans did what they want without any witnesses. He went over and he looked at the records. He spoke to the forced and slave labourers that were still there. And he tried to ascertain what went on in Alderney that nobody witnessed and how many people fundamentally were brutalised or died. And he came up with a figure of 389. Now, he, in his book that was published in the early 80s, he said that number could well have been far more, but those were the people that I could absolutely attest to had died. Since then, there have been lots of theories and lots of people have said the number is in the thousands. When the review was announced by Lord Pickles back in July, 
the president of Albany's government, William Tate, immediately, I emailed him on the Sunday that it was announced that I'd heard about it and said, can I get some feedback from you? And so he came back to me and said, sure, we can talk. And also sent through a press release that said, we welcome it. It is important to, to try to determine at long last and sort of put a lid on this and say, we believe that this number of people died or brutalized by the Germans. I've spoken to a number of other people in Albany. I spoke to somebody this morning, also a politician, who said, look, actually, when I go out on the street, I'm getting mixed views on this. Some people are saying, this is good. Wherever these people died, and we know where lots of them died, then there should be granite engraved memorial stones to them. But there's nothing else we can do. He said other people that he's spoken to have said, look, it, we really need to move on from this. It, you know, This will never ascertain the exact number of people who died at the hands of the Germans. It never will. What's the point? So, and in Guernsey, you know, I've heard very little at all, actually. Sometimes, Alderney's 21 miles away. Sometimes it feels like a lifetime away. Nobody I've spoken to in Guernsey has expressed any opinion at all on this. I mean, my view is that it's right to do it. When I first heard about it, I thought, what again? Because there have been, you know, lots of people have looked at this. But actually, increasingly... The methods of research have become more sophisticated. So a fascinating book was published last year by Caroline Sturdy Coles. Quite an academic book, but I read it. It's called Adolf Island. The, old, the nickname, or not the nickname, the code name for Alderney was Adolf, hence the A. That's what the Germans called it. And she almost, that book exclusively runs to hundreds of pages, talks about these worse than slave or forced labourers. That's uncovered a huge amount of evidence by looking at archive, by going to existing archives, by cross-referencing. So we know that when the SS came to Alderney in early March 1944, they brought over a 1,000 men in two shipments. And it's possible to cross-reference some of those names. And it's going to be a real painstaking exercise. But I think it's important to actually put faces. So it's very easy to walk around in Alderney and see fortifications everywhere. But it's who built them. Well, the Germans didn't really build them. Forced labourers built them. Who were these people? What conditions did they live under? What happened to them if they did survive and went back home? You imagine the stoicism to not cave in, to get ill, but just to carry on and to somehow see the war through and to go back to Ukraine, back to Russia, back to, to France. I think those people do deserve recognition. I think their story needs to be told. Those were the reflections of broadcast journalist and Channel Islander Ewan Mai. A big thank you to Guernsey's Island FM for letting us use their studio to record that segment. Now, two questions for you. One, which country has the largest economy in Europe? And two, which country has the highest number of people experiencing homelessness? The answer to both those questions is, I'm afraid, the same, Germany. Many reasons are given for this, but as Natalie Carney explores from Munich, the demographics of those with no permanent address are changing as more reasons for homelessness emerge. Munich native Christian used to work full-time as a chef at one of the city's many restaurants. However, his propensity for a drink or two after work got the better of him, resulting in him losing everything. At the very beginning, I usually slept at a friend's house. But after a while, some of my friends said yes, and some of them said no. 
Then I slept on the streets, but after the summer, I had problems. So that was really sad. After ending a violent relationship, Christian ended up at a homeless shelter run by the Catholic Men's Wellness Association in Munich. Here, upwards of 68 men with difficult backgrounds are finding a respite from the struggles of the streets. Eva Fandel runs the house on der Chiemgastrasse and has heard all about their hardships. You are exposed to everyone day and night. You're under the surveillance of the police from people who might want to harm you. And of course, your mental illness gets worse there. And then alcohol is used to handle it all. Nobody can really imagine where they go to the toilet, where they get their food from. It's very, very sad, so dark. Many people experiencing homelessness have a mental illness or addiction, making it difficult for them to hold down a job. Others come from abusive situations at home. According to Germany's Ministry of Labor and Social Affairs, some 263,000 people across the country are considered homeless, which they classify as people who are staying in emergency shelters, temporarily with friends or out on the streets. But Verena Rosenki, the managing director of the Berlin-based Federal Working Group for the Homeless, or BAG, believes that the true number is double that. Last year, the federal government collected statistics for the first time. We did our own assessment for the year, including the people who became homeless for the first time, and we estimated approximately 420,000 over the course of the year. Over the past decade, the European Parliament estimates that homelessness in EU countries has risen 70%. Germany has been particularly affected, in part due to the arrival of a million refugees and migrants in 2015-16, and then a further million fleeing the war in Ukraine, putting substantial pressure on the need for affordable housing. Verena Rosenki from BAG again. We have a large proportion of recognized refugees, not those going through the asylum process, those who have the right to stay in Germany, but who cannot find an apartment and therefore continue to stay in shared accommodation. A recent study by Germany's Social Housing Alliance concluded that there is a shortage of 700,000 homes in the country. Adding to that, says Rosenke, skyrocketing rental prices for existing homes are making it harder and harder to find and hold on to stable living conditions, particularly as income inequality grows. The most important reasons for homelessness are eviction and rising rents. Those who can't find a new affordable apartment... That's been very difficult for many in Germany. We have many families among the people who live on the street. Shelter manager Eva Fandel says that the city of Munich is working on preventative measures to keep people in their homes, such as printing brochures explaining ways to deal with rent increases and debt, but more action is needed. A lot of efforts are being made to assist the homeless, but we definitely need more affordable living space. Then we can start with projects like Housing First, where we put someone in an apartment and then give them the tools they need, addiction help, psychiatry and other things. Germany's coalition government, led by the Social Democrats, or SPD, appears to agree and have announced that they want to end homelessness by 2030 by dramatically expanding new housing construction with a focus on affordability. 
The SPD have also put forward policies at the city-state level that would keep a closer legal eye on evictions and lower the bar to get people into housing. Yet for Christian, who has managed to find a job a few days a week, this can't come soon enough. As he scrolls through listings of subsidized housing offered by the city of Munich, Christian shares with me that his biggest dream is to get back into a home he can call his own. You can't find an apartment in Munich, which is always the problem when the rents are so high. I think I've already applied for 400 places and only received one invitation for a viewing. In the meantime, until government policies are approved and buildings built, social welfare organizations such as the Catholic Men's Welfare Association and BAG continue to be that lifeline for struggling families and people like Christian who want nothing more than to live stable and constructive lives. Natalie Carney, DW, Munich. And the theme of lives interrupted continues into our next report, which comes to us from Kyrgyzstan in Central Asia, where reporter Levi Bridges has been meeting with LGBTQ plus refugees from Russia. Since the war in Ukraine started, at least half a million Russians have left the country, with the majority settling in nearby former Soviet countries. Some moved because they opposed the war. Many others fled to avoid a draft that would have forced them to fight in Ukraine. But, as Levi has been finding out, members of Russia's LGBTQ plus community have an additional reason to flee, an increasingly brutal crackdown on their rights. On a recent evening in Bishkek, the capital of Kyrgyzstan, I meet up with a Russian man from Siberia who fled to Central Asia last year to avoid fighting in Ukraine. He didn't want to give his name because admitting you avoided conscription is a criminal offense in Russia. I realized that they could come for me because I served in a military training program in university. Technically, I held the rank of an officer. So I was one of the first people they would call. But another, even bigger reason he was worried is because he's gay. He says there's no law in Russia to protect soldiers from bullying or hazing which is something he's experienced firsthand. When he was in the army, another soldier threatened to tell the officers about his sexual orientation. He was hinting that if they knew I'm gay, then they would kick me out of the army. I didn't know what to do. Because I had come out several years before, and I didn't want to live in secret any longer. But I was worried because the men with higher ranks were brought up in a very homophobic culture. He never got kicked out of the army, but he says soldiers started giving him a hard time and making him do extra work. Many other LGBTQ Russians also immigrated to countries like Kyrgyzstan last fall to avoid serving in the army. Inside a library in downtown Bishkek, located in a tall building made of white stone with big windows shaped like keyholes, I meet up with another young Russian man. Sitting near students flipping through old newspapers, he told me he fled because it felt like he was under constant threat in Russia. 
очень сложно жить и работать, функционировать. Many Russians who moved to Central Asia that I've spoken to feel like their well-being suffered under Putin even before the war started. This young man feels especially threatened because he's bisexual. Russian President Vladimir Putin's government has repeatedly restricted the rights of LGBTQ people. Last December, Russia even passed a new law that makes any reference to LGBT issues in media, like movies or books, a criminal offense. An anti-LGBTQ sentiment is strong among some conservative Russians who support Putin. This man I meet in the library says he thinks they passed this law to create a distraction from how poorly Russia has performed in the war, and LGBTQ people are paying the price. Now, resource centers for LGBTQ people in Russia are closing because of the new law. So there are fewer places for people to go for help if they encounter threats or violence. You can't even be sure it's safe to go to the police. At a table next to us, students are studying French with a teacher. This man also comes here each day to take French classes. He hopes to eventually move to France, or another more tolerant country where same-sex marriage is legal. Central Asia isn't an obvious choice for LGBTQ people to relocate. Recently, Kyrgyzstan's government took away transgender people's right to change their pronouns on official documents. In nearby countries, like Uzbekistan, being gay is a crime. But there's still an active LGBTQ community here. On a recent Saturday night, locals pack into a club frequented by Bishkek's queer community. There's a DJ on the stage, friends and couples dance under soft red lighting. Queer Russians have started new lives here, but many don't plan on staying forever. Paulina, a woman who works with the Russian LGBTQ network, a human rights organization, says she and many others from the community want to go home when the political climate changes. I hope to return home to Russia as soon as possible because I want to live in my country, the country that I love. That doesn't mean I support Russia's government. It's just that it's my country, my home. For some LGBTQ Russians, like the man I met in Bishkek's library, moving abroad has resulted in some positive changes. He recently decided to come out to his friends and family. It was a long road to get here, and part of why I did this now is that I knew I wouldn't receive any negative consequences. In Russia, I could get fined for coming out and talking about my sexuality, but here it wasn't scary. Life is getting more uncomfortable for LGBTQ people inside Russia right now. But for this man, the restrictions actually helped him to become more open about who he is and share it proudly with the world. That report from Levi Bridges in Kyrgyzstan was originally aired on DW's World in Progress program. Listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, I'm Kate Laycock in Germany, and you're listening to Inside Europe. 
The French leader, Emmanuel Macron, executed one of the most remarkable political U-turns of his career last year when he swapped a plan to close a number of nuclear reactors for a plan to build new ones. France will soon begin the construction of six third-generation European pressurised reactors, or EPRs, consolidating its position as Europe's biggest atomic energy producer. And that, by the way, is by a wide margin. Now, you might think that with the accidents at Chernobyl and Fukushima in mind, the people most hostile to the building of new nuclear power plants would be those who would have to live next door to them. But, astonishingly, that is not the case. John Lawrenson reports from the Rhone Valley, where two towns have been competing for the right to have new atomic power plants built there. His report starts in the town that has just won that competition and where construction work for two of the new EPRs will soon begin. Saint-Voulba, its shady plane trees, its cooing pigeons and its nuclear reactors. This small, sunny southern French town already has four of France's 56 atomic power stations at a site called Buget and its inhabitants are very much looking forward to having two more. I've always been pro-nuclear. It provides us with electricity while saving us from having to import it. That was President de Gaulle's idea when he decided to make us a nuclear power in the 60s. And Saint-Vulba would never have developed without it. She lives, she says, right next to the reactors, literally a few dozen metres away. In winter, the steam from the cooling towers falls like snow sometimes. But that's not a problem. It's pretty. You're not afraid of radioactivity? No, there are some people who have thyroid problems, but I'm fine. And I've been living here for 40 years. All is well. Three hours down the Rhone River, it's the same story. A pretty medieval town called Saint-Paul-Trois-Châteaux, which has the Tricastin power plant and a uranium enrichment facility to boot, the largest nuclear complex in Europe. They've also got four reactors, but also felt that six would be just 50% better. I'm 72, and nothing bad has happened with this nuclear reactor so far, so I am inclined to trust that we are relatively well protected when it comes to the nuclear risk. And at the same time, it is clear that France needs these EPRs because we need the electricity. It's partly about money, which you can see all around town. At this aquatic gym class at Saint-Paul-Trois-Châteaux's fabulous swimming pool, for example, built with nuclear industry euros. This town, like Saint-Vulba, is full of nukes-funded music academies, concert halls and stadiums. At Saint-Vulba, they have, as well as a fantastic aquatic complex, as they call it, a giant boulodrome, one of the biggest boule arenas in the world, which recently hosted the French Cup final. Not bad for what is basically a big village. Bonjour, monsieur. Monsieur le maire? The mayor of Saint-Paul-Trois-Châteaux, Jean-Michel Catalinois, used to work in the nuclear industry. Tricastin's reactors were among France's first, built in the 1970s. Their working lives have just been extended 10 years and now won't be decommissioned till the 2030s, to the general relief of the population. 
At least one person per family works in the nuclear industry around here. Around 12,000 jobs depend on it. The financial benefits for the town are considerable and explain why we have excellent facilities and very low local taxes. But it's not just money. The energy crisis sparked by the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the growing realization that massive supplies of zero CO2 electricity might actually make nuclear power a good thing for the environment have changed minds about atomic energy in France as a whole. A recent poll shows the number of French people with a positive view of nuclear power has almost doubled from 34% to 60% since 2019. Green Party councillor Alban Collin, member of a collective opposed to building new nuclear reactors, says this is because of media distortion. Macron is afraid of public opposition to nuclear and has created media hype to make people believe that we can't do without it. But this ignores alternative scenarios suggested by the electricity transmission network that emphasize energy, sobriety and energy efficiency. Madame Collin's association has now lodged an appeal against the decision to build the new reactors at Bouget. But hers has become a minority opinion in France. The old red and yellow nucléaire non merci bumper stickers have pretty much disappeared. And near Bouget and Tricastin, at least, they'd be up for a new one. Nucléaire, oui, s'il vous plaît. John Lawrence DW, Saint-Paul Trois-Châteaux, France. And with that, we reach the end of the show. We'll be back with more European stories next week. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you want to make sure that you don't miss an episode. Reviews and ratings are, of course, also very much appreciated since they help other people to find us. Our feedback address is insideeurope at dw.com and we really do always look forward to receiving your comments and ideas for the show. This programme was produced by me, Kate Laycock, with help from Nick Martin and sound engineers Thomas Schmidt and Gerd Georgi. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany. <laughs>